Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily, everybody. This is Trevor Hall. We have a corporate update with Ascot Resources today. Ascot trades on the TSX with AOT, and they also have an OTCQX listing with AOTVF, and they have been a longtime supporter of the podcast. Connecting with me once again is David Stewart. He's the Vice President of Corporate Development and Shareholder Communications for the company. Uh, David, I hope you had a great holiday season and new year. We've got a lot to catch up on because actually before the holidays even began, there was some big, big news out of Ascot and the premier gold project up there in BC. You received the Mines Act permit. Uh, Huge milestone here for the company. First of all, congratulations. Yeah, very big news. Thanks, Trevor. And and it's a pleasure to be back on the show. Uh, Hope you had a good holiday season as well. Yeah, so we were able to wrap up 2021 with two, I I would say, of the biggest news items of the year. We got our our Mines Act permit. um, And then also after that, two weeks after that, we put out our initial exploration results on the Sabakway zone. Um, So yeah, I, I I can touch on the permit if you want, if that's best. Yeah, I think so. Like, cause this is this is massive. I mean, this, I, like, this is the biggest hurdle any mine project to, to actually get into actually production. It, it like one mine has to get through to get the okay from everything to move forward. And is isn't that correct? I would say so. Yeah, the permit is definitely yeah. <laughs> the thing we get asked about the most from investors and potential investors, um, and it's also. You know, it's the only thing that we need to really build the project. Um, It's also what we need to draw down on the remaining tranches of our project financing um, with Sprott and BD Capital. So, yeah, there's so much of the project that revolves around getting that permit. So we're very happy to have that in our pocket now. But, I mean, obviously the work's not done. I mean, this is a huge milestone. But, what you know, what is the next step for, uh, since you have the permit, what is the next step for construction and financing and all that? What what's Give us the groundwork here. Yeah, so we did provide on the back of that update uh, a bit of a project update in the same news release. um, And we had a conference call after that. So there's a a bunch more detail uh, in those releases. But I'll be able to touch on a few things. So, yeah, we're excited to have the permit because that does make us one of a very select few permitted Canadian gold projects. And I believe Sabina is probably the only other one of significant size that has the permit. Um, And so we've got a great head start on the rest of the pack here in terms of being Canada's most advanced gold developers. And it's not just about being most advanced, but our timeline to production is also by far the shortest as we're currently anticipating pouring gold in just about a year from now in the first quarter of 2023. So we're obviously very excited about what this next year has in store for us as it's the culmination of years worth of drilling and studies and planning and permitting and financing and early works. Um, yeah, everything is kind of cul- culminating into this uh, year of construction here. Now, if you recall, we did uh, originally guide towards initial production in Q4 of 2022. As we announced in tandem with our permit announcement back in December, there's a lot of things that happened all at once. There was an abnormally high level of snowfall in late November and early December. And that was the the same weather events uh, that coincided with the crazy amounts of rainfall and flooding in southern BC. Um, But for us, that turned into snow and it was an outrageous amount of snow. Um, And basically at the same time, there were some components of our clarifier and our thickener that were lost in a major storm uh, while it was en route in the Pacific Ocean. And so the confluence of those events combined with receiving the permit in December rather than in September as we previously scheduled um, led to our decision to scale back outdoor construction activities during the winter and to delay underground development commencement until around April. 
So there's still mm -hmm. things going on at site. It's just most of it is indoors, inside the mill. Uh, we're able to keep working in there. But outdoor construction activities like um, you know, road maintenance and clearing and groundworks, uh, earthworks, uh, also foundation preparation and pouring of concrete. Those things are best deferred until April. So we have a few months here to, to plan out those activities in more detail and then hit everything full steam come April. Now, of course, there are a few cost implications whenever a project is delayed. And most of that's because the fixed costs are spread over a longer period of, than initially planned, right? Um, so in, initial production and subsequent cash flow is also pushed out a bit. Um, but we're in the midst of reviewing that detailed project schedule and cost update, and we should be in a position here uh, to release that in, in the next few weeks. I mean, I remember talking to Derek a few months ago when there was um, an initial capital raise on the back of this financing just because of the cost got a lot higher because of inflation. Obviously, we're not immune to inflationary costs. Is that are you relooking at that as well? Or do we see those type of costs coming into effect once more here? I mean, inflation is there. It's certainly not there to the extent that we've seen it impact other projects like, uh, I don't know, Ar Argonaut Gold's Magino project, like no nothing of that magnitude. Um, but it, okay. it's certainly present. I mean, it's, it, it has to be present. It's present in all of our lives. Uh, if you go to Ikea, if you go to Costco, uh, you know, there, you can't escape it. And so, yeah, that, that will impact things a little bit. Um, but the, I think the delay had a, a bit of a bigger impact on the project cost than I would say inflation had. Okay. I was wondering, could you comment a little bit on the balance between the the preparation and mine uh, engineering and processes leading up to the permit? Now, granted, you know, receiving a permit is not always a guarantee. I mean, obviously, we're, we weren't thinking it would, we we thought pretty it's pretty the success for getting that permit was pretty reasonable here in this case. However, can you talk about the balance leading up to that and getting this thing ready to go in the engineering process compared to where we are now? Because you talked about getting uh, underground development sequence going starting in April. So uh, just kind of comment on how that balance has shifted a little bit in the last in the last month or two. Yeah, I mean, the, the timeline for us has always had to be dynamic, right? Because um, you know, we didn't have a multi-year permitting process like some companies do because we weren't building a greenfields project like most companies do. Um, we basically have the existing mill, we have the ex existing infrastructure, and um, through the permitting process, the feasibility study process, and the engineering and planning process, I mean, all of these things were kind of happening at once. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're trying to be as dynamic as possible and, and optimize things, you know, to the detail that we're able to. So what we would see... Uh, in April is that we start underground development and by optimizing the sequence in at the big Missouri deposit, which is where we will start mining first, we should be able to access development ore because, it, you know, these are relatively shallow deposits. There's not a shaft that we have to sink and it's not, you know, a kilometer down. So we're within a few months of, uh, of getting into big Missouri commissioning ore. Um, as soon as we start in April. So probably by October, that's when we'll be accessing initial stopes and development order for commissioning. Um, and then we'll get in a few more areas to rent things up over the, over the subsequent year after October. Um, the water treatment plant and the processing plant and the tailings facility, everything will kind of be ready for commissioning and turning the switches on next October, November, December. Um, and so everything's kind of leading up until that point where we're able to pour first gold likely in January, February of, of 2023. Um, that's why we're guiding to Q1 23 for first gold. Okay. 
All right, there you go. Uh, you know, rarely do these things go as planned as far as timeline specifically. So, I mean, you know, pushing things off a quarter here early in this stage is probably a pretty reasonable thing and expectation, I would, I would assume. Oh, definitely. People, and our, our, many of our investors, further. you know, they're invested in other developers out there. And everyone's well aware that, you right. know, it doesn't take much for a permitting timeline to slip out six months or a year. And yeah, for us to, to slip by one quarter, I, I think people should be pretty pretty understanding of that. And I think in the background, right. it, it's not lost on us that there's there's other things that we're able to work on. Like another update I, I, I want people to know about is that there's been a lot of progress since the feasibility study in April 2020, not the least of which would be the discovery and the expansion of new areas like Premier West, like the Day Zone, and now Sabakwe, uh, which I'll touch on in a sec here. But insofar as we can convert existing inferred resources on the premier property and find new zones for expansion that motivates us to delay the development of red mountain uh, and instead extend the lives of premier big missouri and silver coin this keeps the logistics simpler it also defers something like 64 million dollars in sustaining capital uh, for red mountain the bulk of which would have been spent in the early years according to the feasibility study so i i think by deferring red mountain there's a number of logistical concerns that are minimized um and also i think we'll see a, a good improvement in the cash flow profile by deferring that into the future as well very good uh, so yeah let's let's do move into some of the exploration news that was also released last month uh you know if mine receiving the mine permit wasn't good enough for you there is exploration upside here and the uh, sabakwe zone which you briefly mentioned had new pretty good hits here 36.17 grams per ton gold over and 20 grams per ton silver over seven meters. There was also close to 30 grams per ton gold, 5.3 grams per ton silver over one meter here. Uh, you know, I, I'm one. F I'm somewhat unfamiliar with this Sabakwe zone here. Can you kind of walk us through what you're seeing and what kind of potential, blue sky potential there is here through exploration? Yeah, so Sabakwe was really a hallmark ending to 2021. Um, really thankful that we got those assays back before the end of the year as a lot of the assays have been delayed. Um, we released the assay results from two holes drilled on the Sabakwe zone. There was sparse historical drilling here from the 1930s and by previous operators, but for all intents and purposes, these were the first holes that we drilled as the current management team, and it's basically pretty new to us. Um, and to hit 36 grams per ton, you know, over an ounce per ton, over seven meters in our first drill hole here is nothing short of spectacular. Usually it takes an order of magnitude more drilling to hit uh, a result like that. So very pleased with that. Um, we did leave that drill pad intact and we will start there again next year in addition to a few more pads for surface drilling. The mineralization, um, while intercepted, at it, it was pretty deep, like it was 368 meters down hole. But given the topography, the actual high-grade intercept was only a, around 50 meters below the mill building elevation and only mm -hmm. 600 meters west of the mill itself. So this is very close mineralization, very accretive for us to grow this zone and to mine it in the future potentially. Because portaling in near the mill and developing horizontally uh, would also be a great way to drill this stuff more efficiently in future years from underground and to fan drill it from underground as, a, as opposed to having to drill three, 400 meter deep holes from surface. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my one question here is just kind of how much more work do you need to put in here? Like, what's the expectation so you kind of mitigate dilution here no matter which angle you go go towards or go from, excuse me? Yeah, I mean, generally with drilling, you, you always want to uh, intersect perpendicular to the, um, to the 
the strike of of the mineralized zone just best practices for drilling so um yeah we, we want to drill some from surface which if everything pans out and exploration keeps being successful then it would be enough density to wrap some kind of inferred resource around it and then in future years getting underground and, and drilling it uh, more densely would, would be a lot more efficient i think another thing that was really exciting about the Sabakwe zone was it's just another example that proved our ip targeting method is effective the mineralization was intercepted right in the middle of a strong IP signature, or in layman's terms, smack dab in the middle of the big red blob, which you know everyone always likes to see. Um, and generally, historical drill programs only focused on daylighting or outcropping mineralization. So uh, for stuff that's like blind discoveries, uh, these, these IP signatures, there's something like 15 similar IP signatures as you head up across the north end of the property. So plenty more discoveries to be made. And I think most of all, the exciting part of Sabakwe is its potential to be a third repeat of the same structure that hosts uh, what we call the Northern Light and the Premier deposits near the mill. So you have these kind of half-bowl structures. You get Premier, and then move a bit north, you get the Northern Light. It's offset by about 500 meters. And then again, offset by around another 500 meters, you got this potential third structure, uh, which is Sabakwe. So in theory, the blue sky potential here is huge if, if it's another whole structure and you know the truth machines of the drills will eventually figure it out but but that's the blue sky scenario right now we're really excited about that uh, walk us through quickly kind of the uh, budget for exploration here on the project this year as you balancing both the construction development uh, of the mill and uh, mine engineering but also for specifically for the exploration what, what are we looking to do here this year i think we'll do something that's similar to last year uh, in that we'll probably have somewhere in the range of 3 million bucks or 15 to 20,000 meters planned. Um, what's gonna change potentially is depending on when and how fast we get underground and, and are able to develop underground, we'd like to be able to infill a bunch of stopes planned for the early years of the mine life and also do some exploration drilling from underground. So um, you would see that program grow uh, pending the success of our getting underground and developing a couple hundred meters in uh, to establish some underground drill stations. Okay. Uh, underground miners are few and far between anymore, from my understanding. How is staffing? <laughs> you know, there's a labor shortage everywhere here, David. How is staffing with Ascot? Yeah, I mean, so early on, that's not a huge risk for us because the, the first okay. miners to go underground will be the contractors. Um, you know, we haven't selected the underground contractor yet, but, but they will basically be required to do their own staffing. And to my knowledge, there's not that many projects in construction right now. There's a bunch, you know, on deck, uh, assuming they can get their permits and financing and get their feasibility studies out. There's something like, there's 18 different developers that I'm aware of in Canada, um, ranging all the way from PEA studies to feasibility studies and us in construction. Um, but out of that group, there's, there's very few actually in construction right now. There's a lot of projects in construction on Ontario, like you've got Magino and uh, the Hard Rock Project and also Cote Lake. Those, um, those are all big open pit projects, right? So there's not that many underground projects in construction right now. So I, I think generally, yeah, staffing is a, is a risk for every industry right now. Um, but I don't think we're seeing that many pressures for underground miners and especially in BC, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of legacy underground mines in the past, uh, but not that many underground mines right now. And so, um, yeah, there's probably a, a larger labor pool 
than if we were to try to build an open pit project uh, for underground miners. Okay, very good. Uh, I, I, there's one other topic I know we want to hit on here, and this is kind of the greenhouse gas emissions study results from the project. And I know this is really important for the entire team here that uh, you hit on some of these ESG checkpoints uh, from the project. Um, it's interesting results. You're in the bottom quartile of carbon intensity for gold production. That's that's really fascinating. I guess you know, kudos to everybody who you know got this up and going. Yeah, I mean that's it's kind of what we expected, but it, it wasn't until we actually did the study conducted by a third party that we actually confirmed our hypothesis. I mean, we we knew because we're in BC, because we're right at the power grid, we're going to be drawing from BC's clean hydroelectric power. That that means scope two emissions are really low, and we knew scope one emissions would be pretty low because. You know, a, a high-grade, generally small-scale underground mine is, is always going to have lower emissions than would a you know low-grade bulk open pit operation would. Um, but definitely pleased with how the numbers came out. You know, we're we're expecting 0.21 tons of carbon equivalent per ounce gold produced. And that's well within the the bottom quartile globally. If if it was producing today, it's about 49% lower than the average underground mine in the world, and 76% lower than the average open pit mine. And it's worth mentioning that that's even before focusing on the low-hanging fruit of things like electrifying our, our equipment fleet, something that is currently unreali unrealistic for most open pit operations. But for us, we would look into that in future years. Um, and, it, and obviously, in addition to yeah. the important implications for climate change, our low carbon advantage would be twofold. Um, number one, institutional fund managers are facing increasing pressure to only invest in low carbon emitters. Uh, and number two, and this is a more emerging one. It's that for corporates, right, the, cor the current producers, carbon intensity is an emerging theme in M&A rationale as larger producers continually seek to decarbonize their portfolios. Two recent examples of this would be Newcrest's acquisition of Predium and Kinross's acquisition of Great Bear. The decarbonization wouldn't have been the primary factor in those M&A events, but certainly they were, they were used in the rationale uh, for making those transactions. So suffice to say that... Yeah. You know, as GHG emissions continues to dominate headlines and become more relevant globally, we at Ascot are in a pretty good position um, than most, I would say. Yeah, that was very fascinating. Maybe next time you and I talk about just this the, this carbon intensity and what it means for companies, not only for M&A, but also, um, you know, getting in front of funds that otherwise would probably turn them back before you even got into the door based on some of this. I mean, that'd be a, that'd be a topic for another day, I think. A hundred percent. There's a small yeah. list of funds right now that um, among the specialist uh, gold and precious metal equity funds, there's a small uh, number of funds that are very focused on that, but it is a, a very quickly growing list of funds that are, that are uh, evaluating that as a criteria before they make an investment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, David, it's a pleasure to have you back on. And uh, also, if I may, I just want to send a congratulations. You had your first baby over uh, the holiday season. So I hope you're getting some sleep. Congratulations. And good time for you personally and also for you professionally. So congratulations, my friend. Yeah, appreciate that, Trevor. Uh, yeah, all aspects. Every, everything's moving very quickly. So it's a very, very blessed period to be in right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's David Stewart from Mascot Resources, again, trading on the TSX with the symbol AOT. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with some more market commentary here momentarily on Mining Stock Daily. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. 
Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.